Welcome back, warriors. Quay Ninda Luizi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and reparations. So if you're interested in hearing about native peoples from all of our sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about indigenous resistance, resurgence, and revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. On today's podcast, I have a very special guest. She is literally one of my favorite artists, and I just finished telling her I want to have her artwork all over my house, and I literally can't wait to talk to her. So this is a podcast that you don't want to miss. Stay tuned. You are in for the best season opener podcast ever. It's literally my first podcast of the new season. Not that I really have seasons. I basically just did about 130 podcasts that spanned over several years and then took a break. So I guess maybe having a break is what makes the season, but I just got to talk to so many amazing Indigenous peoples from all over Turtle Island. I think this is my favorite thing to do ever, to actually get to talk to all of my heroes. They're just so amazing. So I'm not sure how long this season's going to be. Um, could be several years, but I just feel fortunate to be able to talk to all of these people who are doing everything to represent and advocate for our people. But let's get right to today's podcast because I am so super excited. Today we have the most amazing Native artist ever. Her name is Chief Ladybird and I am so excited that she is here on the podcast. Welcome to the show Chief Ladybird. Hi, you're like enthralling to watch. <laughs> Well, thank you. That's good. It's better than being boring, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't think that there is anyone on this planet who doesn't know you. And if they don't know you, I'm sure your art is totally recognizable. I mean, you could literally put that artwork out there and go, hey, you know what? I think that's a chief ladybird peep because you just have such an amazing and identifiable style. And for all of you who might not know her, like the two people out there in the world, Chief Ladybird, she is just an, an incredible person and an artist amongst many, many other things. She graduated from OCAD with a BFA in drawing and painting with a minor in Indigenous visual culture. But it looks to me like she's got like a triple, double, ultra, mega major in Indigenous visual art as it is at this point. She's got a huge presence on social media and then she uses that to portray intersectional Indigenous experiences. She embraces sexuality. There's just so many wonderful things about Chief Ladybird. I literally love all her work but I'm now starting to sound like a record on repeat. So welcome to the podcast and before we jump into any of the bazillion questions that I have, uh, proper protocol is that I'd love for you to introduce yourself and where you're from in the way that you like to or according to your custom. 
For sure. Thanks so much. Um, Aninkinawea, Ogimakwe, Vanessa, and Dijnakaz, Minjikining, Minwamu, Steer, Donjaba, Magizi, Dodum. So, my name is Chief Ladybird. That's actually my spirit name that I was given in ceremony when I was a baby. Uh, my grandfather on my dad's side uh, named me, and it's actually one of my ancestors' names. Um, one of my cousins recently like found uh, like a record of that with her name written and seeing it, like knowing it, you know, but seeing it felt like super cool. Um, so it's really important to me to use this name in my art practice for the things that I'm talking about within my work. Uh, my English name is Nancy, <laughs> but I feel like... <laughs> I, I didn't even know you you had an English name. It's like, Nancy, this is the first time I'm hearing it. <laughs> yeah, and that name's special to me too because it's my maternal grandmother's name. So I'm very lucky that both my names come from like powerful matriarchs in my family. Um, but I feel like my work comes from Ogimakwebanes. It doesn't come from Nancy, which is why I decided to use it. And I had my grandfather's blessing for that as well, which felt like spectacular when he was like yes <laughs> um so I come from Rama First Nation and Mooster Point First Nation um I grew up in Rama but I was actually registered under the Indian Act at uh Moostier first when I was really really young and then was able to transfer to my mom's reserve which is Rama um, but I still very much consider both of them home um and I also sit in the Eagle Clan uh, which is my father's clan, and uh, I try to take my responsibilities within that uh, very, you know, hold those close to my my heart and do my best to live by that. Um, currently, I live back in Rama after living in Toronto for about nine years, where I studied at OCAD, as you said, in that lovely, amazing, super fantastic introduction you gave me. <laughs> when you were talking about me, I was like, that Pam's talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's awesome so that's me oh that's fantastic I mean and you know I always found that it was just so amazing when people come from multiple nations or you know and, and multiple communities like my family is literally made up of Mi'kmaq people that married Willistaquay people so you know we've got these two big nations together and so many of my cousins could register with one First Nation or another First Nation within these larger nations. And I just love that you're, you're connected to both. I mean, something the federal government wouldn't approve of. But needless to say, this is just how we are with our relations with other people. So I, I really, really like that. Um, and for people who um, are not necessarily on every kind of social media, you can follow Chief Ladybird on Instagram at none other than Chief Ladybird. She was lucky to get her name across all of these things or and uh, Twitter at Chief Ladybird. So that's fantastic because, you know, it's it's not every day that people get to have all of these social media things. So you are very smart to get this done early. But um. Yeah, so I think it's it's so awesome that you use like your spirit name as part of your art and then it has all of these really important connections. I mean, it really goes to show just how important culture is to you, isn't it? Like it it seems to be the heart of of everything you do. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um and I find it's really important for me to give the context of my name as well. I know that there's been misinterpretations in the past where people <laughs> I don't know, tried to say She's not even a chief. <laughs> but I mean, you know, chief in terms of leadership, I suppose, is how mm -hmm. I, I kind of 
um, take that from the teachings of my name. And my grandfather did say when he named me that I would have kind of like a leadership role in my life. Um, so then when it came to like deciding what I wanted to do, I decided to be an artist when I was like 10 years old. Um, so like ever since then I was like, well, how can I be both? And so it was important to me to find my voice, um, in that and honor that name that my grandfather gave me. Okay. So, you know, let's talk about that because that's very interesting. Some people, when they're a little kid, they want to, you know, grow up and be a baker or a, you know, a, a paramedic, or uh, like there's just a multitude of things. Maybe they want to be a, a grass dancer or what. Uh, but ultimately, as life goes on, people change the the things that they want to be. Their dreams get altered. Life gets in the way. But you've wanted to be an artist since you were ten years old. What 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 attracted you to art when you were so young? I actually started drawing when I was about two. Um, like ever since I could hold a pencil, my parents noticed that I really loved doing that. So they really encouraged it and gave me all the tools I needed. And um, I don't know what called me to it. I just always did it. There wasn't a moment where I haven't done it. Um, and then, but I, but the moment that I remember being 10 years old, I was standing on a dock at King Bay Marina at Moose Point, which is my grandparents' marina for any cottagers listening go there yeah I love King Bay um shout out um but I remember standing there with my dad and there's two folks who are cottagers and family friends who um are very big supporters of OCAD it's the Duponcier family so my dad introduced me because he's known them kind of like his whole life I guess um and said my daughter likes art like can you tell her about the school that you support so that's when I learned about OCAD and that at that moment I was like I can like do this thing that I love for the rest of my life like that can be my job because there's always that conception that you have to be like at a nine-to-five job or in an office or you know what I mean and like I mean there was a moment as a kid where I thought um tornado chaser would be super fun little dreams on the side and <laughs> when I went through like an emo phase I was like I'm gonna be a mortician oh, <laughs> but, that's so emo oh my god that's awesome but like the bottom line through my whole life yeah it was art was the thing that I was called to and so when they explained that to me on the dock like clear as day memory that I'll always have um that right then and there I was like all right I'm going to OCAD I'm gonna be an artist and I just never ever wavered like even when I graduated I remember I had no money like <laughs> I think I was on my last like few hundred bucks rent in Toronto is extreme like I was not even really that worried though for some reason like I just felt confident I guess and guided and I just knew that I wasn't gonna stifle myself and be in jobs that didn't feed my soul so I went for it and my mom was worried she's like Are you doing this <laughs> She's like, okay, are you sure you don't need to get a job like while you get that off the ground? And I was, I understand because, you know, parents worry yeah. and want the best for their kids. But I was like, no, I'm just going to go for it. And the, funny enough, the first job I got after um, graduating from OCAD was to design something for the Vimy Ridge Foundation. So the oh. Vimy Ridge Memorial site in France or something, they needed a concept. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in war. I, it was a very hard project for me, but I, you know, at the, when you start out, you need the money, you're going to take whatever projects you can. 
I remember at that moment, I was like, well, I hate this. <laughs> if anyone from Vimy Ridge is listening, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Grateful, of course, and that was a good experience. But yeah, yeah that was a difficult one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I just can't believe, though. You know, you could have been a mortician. That's like right. the best background dream I have ever heard. <laughs> it could have been a mortician. That's just phenomenal. But to, to have art, to it always be a part of your life and to be supported, I think that's really cool too, because you often hear stories of, you know, artists not being supported, sometimes with great intentions. Like you said, your parents are like, oh, well, you know, you want to be able to support yourself because it, artists struggle. And I don't need to tell you that, but the fact that you did it, you always knew from a kid, you went to OCAD, you did it. That's phenomenal. And so tell me about OCAD. What's that like? I mean, you got a, a BFA. So how did that mesh with art as you understood it, you know, growing up? I had a bit of a hard time at OCAD sometimes. I mean, I, I did and I didn't. It's kind of a, a tricky thing because on one hand, I was so happy. I was just like making art to get through school. Um, I also ended up connecting with a lot of really cool people that I'm still connected with who like, I don't know, they influenced you like throughout your whole career basically. Um, and the learning process I think was more enriched by being around other artists, which prior to that, like you're not, you're not really like you don't tend to be around other creative people. Um, so I feel like it was like, beneficial and necessary but I feel like it was hard because the art forms that I wanted to do weren't taken very seriously um you know a, a lot of the stuff that I studied was like how to oil paint and do figurative stuff and life drawing and that was fun like I love that but like what I wanted to do was the stuff I'm doing now which is like very bright woodland style stuff um political stuff but it just felt like there wasn't um access points for a lot of my um, peers to understand my work. So like in critique, which, uh, when you're in art school, having a critique is like when you present each project to your class and you learn how to talk about your work, you learn how to express yourself, you know, in the art form, but also like verbally and how to explain your ideas. And then your peers learn how to, um, assess art, I guess, and understand the visual language and give feedback. I almost never got feedback because people were afraid that they would say something wrong or they didn't understand what I was talking about. The imagery, like for example, like this, these Norval Morisot pieces that I have behind me, wow. like when I did work inspired by this, people like literally someone said my work reminded them of like a crazy person, which is derogatory and like not okay. I didn't have the tools then. I was like 18. Like you don't know how to really advocate for yourself in those moments, but there was just such a lack of education amongst a lot of my non-Indigenous peers that, yeah, it became a huge struggle. And I will go even to say that, like, there was professors who didn't have the education because in my final critique, in my thesis year, which thesis is, like, really important to even get into thesis was, like, a competitive process. I was very proud of myself for getting into that. Um, so you make a body of work and then you present it to your um, thesis advisors and, and they bring in other people as well who are like um, gallery owners or art writers and stuff like that. Um, so I got put into a room with like four old white men <laughs> and I was oh. like, um, so they're looking at my work 
And this is like a big moment at the end of your thesis where it's like the final thing. So you want feedback, you want to talk about it. And then literally, I don't even remember having the chance to really talk about it. They kind of looked and said, who is this art really for? Because we don't get it. I'm like, it's literally not for the four of you standing in this room. <laughs> yeah, 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 literally, like, it's um, not for you. Makes it very hard. So then I explained it to them. And like the one critique I got was like, well, the colors you use aren't very native. And I, I was like, this is a fucking fourth year. Am I allowed to swear on your podcast? <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> like, I was like, this is my thesis year. And that's what I'm being, like, told right now. <laughs> yeah, your art's not native enough. Move along. Because <laughs> I use neons, right? And they're like, neons aren't indigenous. And I'm like, what? Have you been to the AGO? There's literally, like, at the time, there was that big uh, Nishnabe show happening. And I think there was um, a neon Thunderbird. If not there, then that was the one at the power plant. But I remember there was contemporary shows happening at that time. And I'm like, you are so not informed. (laughs) (laughs) I always roast OCAD for this kind of stuff, like ever since the day I graduated. And I'm shameless about it. (laughs) They need to educate people about this. They're like, it's unbelievable. (laughs) Oh, but but you you passed these four white men passed you yeah I actually won an award um at the final exhibition too for life study um which was fantastic because the and actually the work that I ended up winning that for was um mixed media like very digital based Mm -hmm. so I never learned digital the whole time I was at OCAD it was like oil painting charcoal drawing pastels like really traditional um art materials But then close to the end, I did have a professor named Anda Cubis, and she was kind of like looking at the way I drew and was like, can you try Photoshop? (laughs) I was like, I don't know how. So she just kind of showed me the basics and said, just play around with it. And then I made this thesis work by playing around with it, won that award, and now my whole practice is digital. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, that works. That's amazing. Uh, You know, and I'm sitting here thinking like, all of our worst nightmares, right? To be, have to present before a committee of all white men, to try to argue court cases before all white men, to defend your thesis against all white men. Oh my gosh. So that must have just been nerve wracking to begin with, but then the their lack of education, their lack of perspective, their lack of knowledge on culture, like good on you. I I just can't believe that you had to go through that. Um, But I I guess that also in some way weirdly prepares you for society and some of the probably comments that you get from people, you know, back and forth, there's always good and bad and everything, but Mm -hmm. um, you clearly survived that experience. And then, you know, you, you went on from there, I guess, with this professor teaching you how to do digital art, it clearly you jumped right into that. Like what attracted you to that specifically? Because your art is literally everywhere in that sense. Well, once I started playing around on Photoshop, I don't know something clicked in my head and I was like, Oh, because I'm a very (laughs) like instant gratification kind of person. So doing an oil painting and waiting days for it to dry. Like I was always using different mediums to make it dry as fast as acrylic. And even then I was like impatient. Like I was like, ah, and then I'd scrap it. And then I would never finish the oil painting to where I knew I could get it because I was just, I want to do one thing and move on to the next. Cause there's so many things going on in my head 
at all times, like just layers and like, do you remember on SpongeBob when he's like in this room and there's like all these filing cabinets and all the SpongeBobs are running around? That that's my brain. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god, SpongeBob. Starting this, I was like, oh, I can like really bang my ideas out. Like even in terms of the sketching process. So I was mainly doing the mixed media with my photography and then printing it onto canvas. And so I was still painting on it and I was beading on it as well. Um, And then because I started doing murals after OCAD, um, which was very interesting as well, because I ended up doing spray paint on like huge walls in the city. um, I did so many within like a short period of time. I think we did like 22 murals in a year, like which was intense. So like sketching it on paper, I was like, we don't have time for this. Like we need to figure out a faster way. (laughs) So then I I got an iPad and started sketching on there. And then that process, I was like, Oh, (laughs) I can do things even fast. So then I taught myself actually how to illustrate. I never took a formal course for it at all. So it was just kind of like I got a base level of training and then took off and did all this other weird stuff. (laughs) Oh, that's, that's literally phenomenal that you would do that. Like I think about artists who tell their story about how they came up with a concept for a mural, you know, how they they really think about it and choose all their colors and what messages they were going to do. And it took it a whole year for them to roll out like one mural and you're like 22. That's more than one a month. That's like to a month, essentially. Like, you must have been on nonstop artistic mode. That's to a month if you include the winter months, which we didn't. That This was between April and October. So oh this was gosh. sometimes four or five in a month. <laughs> how is that even possible? <laughs> I don't know how I survived those years. And it's like, I don't know if you've ever painted a mural. It is physically taxing, like, going up the ladder and climbing down the ladder and you know being on the lift too I taught myself how to use the lift because when I did a mural they left the scissor lift there and said you're trained on this right and I was like yep and they <laughs> took off they didn't check to see if I had it so I youtubed a tutorial I hopped on and started going <laughs> oh my gosh oh my gosh that's just like I'll just teach myself everything I'm gonna build a building next and then put a mural on it <laughs> that's awesome but it must also been very like taxing to say the least to be at that pace when you just hear about so many other artists who you know they've got a commission project and it just takes such a long time for the process to happen I don't know why I just can't work like that like taking a long time to do something I'm very I'm trying to give myself more time for projects because then I end up being like I have a day to do this and I have a day to do this and then that's like stressful. <laughs> uh, I yeah. think like that, right? Like when it comes to a mural, I don't have to dwell over it. I think because they, it's all just, these images are just always floating around in my head. So then when it comes to making mural, it just kind of wow. flows out. Boom, there's a sketch in 10 minutes. Then I, the colors don't, I just do that intuitively too. I don't dwell over yeah. that. Or if there's not certain colors available, I'm like, yeah, sure. That color will do. And then you just make it work, I guess. <laughs> I don't that's- know. That's awesome. And, but, you know, it just goes to show that everyone's brain works differently. So I always, you know, tell people who are aspiring authors, for example, you know, like I work with colleagues at the university who every day they set aside one hour to work on their book. They just do whatever they can in that one hour. And then the next day they do the next thing. Uh, 
I, I can't do that. Like, I literally can't do that. I literally have to sit down, be a hermit for like a month and write, like get all this content out and you can do all the finessing later, but it has to be like a mad scientist. I'm so angry about all of these issues. That's literally how most of my writing goes. I can't, I just can't do it in pieces. So I think in that, in that way, it's, it's there and you just want to get it all out and you can do the refining stuff later, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I feel like that's passion that makes it happen like that right yeah where you're it's just there and it bubbles out and then you just have to do it all like I totally get that yeah that's that's awesome I just can't believe it like still the the work pace though I I can't say that I've been ever anywhere near that but that that's that's really exciting so you you went on to do that and then what were you thinking you know you've graduated from OCAD you're doing all these these projects did you know at that point that you'd be able to make a living at it or was that ever your goal was your goal just to make it your passion and make a living somewhere else or had those two things blended for you yeah I wanted this to be how I made my living um and I think yeah doing during the mural years that was when I was really seeing that there was like a demand for indigenous work Um, and then that was kind of when my social media started growing as well. I've always been on social media ever since like it became a thing. The first year Facebook was out, I was on there. The first year Twitter was out, I was on there. So like I've been online like since I was literally 10 years old, like MSN every night with my friends. Um, and I just always have like lived my life online. And so I think that that played a huge role too in like getting my name out there. Um, but I saw I think at the, I feel like at the time there wasn't as much content on social media. It was also very personal for people, but I kind of seen it as an opportunity to start sharing um, just process and work and the hashtagging. Um, and I was always very passionate about social media as well um, and worked as a summer student in communications when I was younger. Fun fact. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah, I don't know. It was just during all of that time where it really became very real to me where I was like, oh, like I can definitely transform this into a whole ass career. Um, but then it was like thinking about what was sustainable. So 22 murals in a year is yeah. not sustainable for the body or the mind. Like, And then place, I think, wasn't sustainable either. Living in the city, I was living alone. Rent is insane. Like, I didn't want to be on the TTC because people creep me out. So then I was Ubering, which is like, and I lived in the, in the beaches. So to get downtown was like very expensive. So it was just like things were starting to add up. So then I had to work three times as hard to like make as much money to even live, you know? Wow. Um, so then it was about like, well, what's my next plan? And then the pandemic hit and forced me to come home, which was something I was toying with for quite some time, but I wasn't like, I hate moving. So I was just like, didn't make the moves to get here. (laughs) Pandemic forced me. And it was like the best thing that ever happened because now I can really like have the time and space to focus on the things that I'm passionate about instead of being on that city urban hustle, like the grind life. Like that's kind of what I was living for a while. And now I'm living like a more peaceful, slower life and still being able to do what I love. So yeah, and, and the great thing about it is we get to watch it all unfold on social media, what you're doing from day to day. So anybody who is interested in a real-life drama series with lots of great things happening, 
just follow her on social media. You can see what she's working on, what she's doing, who she's hanging with. I mean, that's awesome. I want to see more pictures of your puppy, though. I think that's, you know, as a puppy person, I, I got to see these pictures. I'll post more Ludo content. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So, so throughout all of this, obviously, you're inspired by your family. You're inspired by your culture, probably just everyday life. Were there any particular inspirations for you like any specific artists I know you mentioned Norvell Morso but it, it was was that person one of your inspirations were there other people yeah I think Norvell Morso inspires everyone <laughs> yeah. um, but Daphne Ojig was a, a big inspiration as well um, she had like a series of erotic uh, woodland style pieces that really sucked me in when I saw those because I was like Oh, like, you know, I think there was always that idea that woodland style art, you know, it's still a very male dominated um, aspect of making work. Um, so I think there was like the, and, and I held this mindset too, that it had to be certain um, concepts within it. So like, you know, chiefs and clans and governance and stuff like that. But then when I saw her work and it was sensual, that opened up something totally new for me because I was like, that's how I feel in my life is like, I see the sensual side. I feel like a sensual sexual person. Um, and so that gave me like a little window where I was like, that is like a lot of our experience, especially as like indigenous women and the ways that we connect to ourselves. And um, so that was a huge inspiration uh, to me with layering in the sexuality part of my work. Um, but I think too, like more so and Daphne and the Indian group of seven, all of those artists who were working in their own, um, visual language of woodland style have been so important to contemporary artists like myself, because they really work to put us into galleries instead of having us in museums. Um, because at a certain point, our work was always seen as artifact and historical, and they really made it contemporary. So I always like they're always in the back of my mind when I'm making this work, like maybe wouldn't be possible to do what a lot of us are doing now without the strides that they made. Um, yeah. I feel yeah. like there's like a thousand artists that I look up to, but <laughs> yeah. you know when you get asked and then you yeah, can't yeah, yeah. think of everyone. <laughs> like, Oh no, I should have brought my big list so I could just list them all off. And yeah, I think most people understand that, you know, you can only mention so many people, but I also think it's important that point that you made about how Native art has been treated as something that didn't even belong to us. It was done for someone else to be um, taken, stolen, uh, put in museums, locked away, oftentimes not even to be seen uh, with no sense of what the care that you need to do. I mean, there's all different forms of art, obviously, or the appreciation of it, or that we could even exist in the here and now that, Oh, look, here's this chief ladybird that 200 years ago painted these paintings and we have it in a museum and not really kids or people or settlers or anyone being able to connect with, look at these modern day artists who are expressing themselves and their culture, just like any other artist does. And I think it's that historicization that you've been able to challenge and the other thing that I'm like I really admire about you because I don't need to tell you native women throughout history uh not only have been they've been traded in horrible racist derogatory 
negative fashion, you know, fraught with violence from settlers and settler governments, also highly sexualized in degrading ways. You know, you think about all of the the traitors and the early police forces that literally exploited all of these young girls sexually. Um, There's just so much bad around that. So you can imagine the sensitivities that even Indigenous people, so never mind Canadian, but Indigenous women might be like, oh, that that art makes me a little bit uncomfortable and you can't really put your finger on it or maybe you shouldn't be doing that. And it comes from a place of, because look at all of the bad things that have happened to us. But the way that you do it is just, it's so beautiful and you embrace it and it's a part of our history and culture. Like you're sharing, like here's the good side of sensuality and sexuality or what it means to be a woman. And I just, I think that's one of your most important contributions. I mean, and there's so many, but it's, to me, that's just been so powerful. What have the, what has the reaction been to some of that art? Have you had like mixed reactions or have most people pretty much celebrated it like I do? I feel like there's been mixed reactions um, and understandably so, but I feel like for me, you know, thinking about the violence that our women have gone through and understanding that hypersexualization and the demeaning ways in which um, that's been, that kind of light has been shone on us um, by people outside of our communities um, made me real, like I was really, really thinking about that. Like I know that that's has been a contributing factor. Um, So it was about for me, how do we make it empowering and I was like, you know what? We're just fucking taking our power back. We're allowed to be sexual. So many other women in the world are allowed to be and have taken that power back. And I just really feel like we have a seat at that table as well. Um, and like when I was like really thinking about it, I'm like, it's kind of victim blamey to say that we can't be sexual because then we'll, you know, become further targets for violence and abuse like that. Never sat right with me. Um, and especially in this era of like where we're there's a new narrative of like, we're not going to blame victims. We're going to blame the perpetrators of violence. So when I'm putting these images out there, it's like, we're not to be blamed for being sexual, beautiful, sensual, connected people. And like, for me, it was about reconnection in terms of like, you know, there is disconnection from the land and from our bodies. And this happened through residential school and it's intergenerational trauma and Um, all of these things have disconnected that. And so we're all finding ways to like come back into our bodies and reconnect these things so that we can be better for our children and their children. And this, I think was important for me to start expressing, um, despite like as someone who's experienced like, you know, shit behavior from men (laughs) and, you know, white men, um, like there is this one time too a guy was like oh like I would love to sleep with you I have my black belt I have my brown belt but I don't have my red belt like being like a I don't know like an award system for him like I was like that gross sickening like (laughs) oh gross shit like that stays in the back of my head too when I'm you know thinking about this work um but I you know I understand there's a fine line between empowerment and exploitation and so that's always on my mind like I'm not ever approaching it like sloppily Mm -hmm. I guess 
Um, but there has been like, oh no, the cat's here. <laughs> there has been um, a lot of support. He's climbing into the cat bed that I've got my <laughs> You little butthead. <laughs> That's life with pets. I know. I love it. Yeah. Um, let me get my train of thought back. There, ha- there has been like quite a bit of support, I think, because it's a reality that a lot of us live with is that we want to connect to that and, and embrace that within ourselves. Um, yeah. I mean, there's always going to be pushback with when you're, yeah. you know, when it's new, I don't want to say new territory. That sounds <laughs> colonial way of putting it but when you're um taking steps into new places and talking about things that maybe have been kind of hush hush Mm -hmm. um but I just want it all to be out in the open for us to all talk about and decide how we feel about it I guess the conversation Uh, is an important part of my art as well yeah and and I guess it's there's so many things I can say about that because it really struck me. You know, I went from, Oh, uh, this, I wonder why this makes me worried to, wow, we talk about land back. This is like giving us our bodies back. You know, you think about what, you know, we've been saying for decades about the violent exploitation um, uh, and the rape of our lands and bodies, right? Well, there's land back, but we haven't, so much talked about what about celebrating our bodies and and allowing us to be sexual sensual beings uh, especially as women where we face so much violence so I just I really 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 appreciate that part um because you you have to go you have to kind of sort out what comes from colonizers what comes from hateful white men what comes from misogynists and racists and all that stuff mm-hmm. and What do you have to do to keep yourself safe? Obviously, that's important. But what do we also have to do to not let ourselves be limited by what they've done to limit us? You know what I mean? So it's like that pushing back against not being able to celebrate what should be very, very joyous. So I'm just, I'm really thankful that you've done that kind of work. Yeah. And I think that this work has really helped me um, with my own perception of myself, because like the media, like everything, all the images that were shown all the time just make us everyone feel like shit about their body. But once I started doing this kind of work and saw the similarities between body and land, like, you know, the hills are like the, your stretch marks are like mm-hmm. the thunderbirds and their lightning and all of these beautiful poetic things and reading poetry from other indigenous creators like Tennille Campbell, like, incredible stuff um a lot of us are kind of relating our body to the land but then we look at the land and we don't think wow ugly (laughs) exactly wow ugly so when I started seeing the similarities and I think about how I see the land I start to see myself like that and I want other women in our community to know that I see them like that and I want them Mm -hmm. to see themselves and each other like that so that's I don't know. I think that's really, really a part of it, a part of land back. And there, there was actually a writing in Briar Patch magazine. I think Adrian Loon did it, uh, sexual sovereignty. And it was in the land back um, wow. issue. You should check the, if you haven't read it, you yeah. should, or whoever's listening should read that, that mm-hmm. I have that like saved on my computer in like several places. So I can access it when I need, like that was like a very powerful writing for me. Oh, that's awesome. So yes, everyone go out, 
and read that uh, because it is very important. Now, I wonder if I can just show a couple of slides mm -hmm. of, I mean, all of your artwork is my favorite, but some that really struck me. And if you could talk a little bit about what, you know, the meaning is behind each piece. So for example, this one, when I look at it, uh, you know, the moose is so central to Mi'kmaq culture. And, you know, I'm from the Mi'kmaq nation and, you know, there's, there's the moose, just the center here and you've got uh, your flowers which are very characteristic of lots of your art the celebration of color and flowers can you just tell me what what this picture is all about because I just love it mm -hmm. I want to start with the flowers actually because I don't know if I've ever told if I've told the story too much but there were, I have this one memory too near the end of my time at OCAD and I was painting with an old friend who I'm not really friends with anymore that's besides the point but we were working on stuff and um, this flower just came out of me and it was just one flower, but it looked, it was one of these blue ones and there was a bird head coming off of it and all these colors around it. It just came out and I was like, oh, ooh. And it felt like, I don't know, it just felt like me. Like it felt like, um, I don't know. I For me, these flowers became a symbol of like decolonization, of reconnection to everything um, to new life growing, to culture growing. And so I, I have them kind of like expanding through a lot of my work because they carry all of that meaning. And I don't know, they're just, they're like little pieces of me or something like that. <laughs> oh, that's so nice to know. I love that. Now, every time I'm going to look at your art, it's like oh, those flowers, that's just a little piece of her because for people who are listening and, and not watching this uh, on YouTube, you know, this, this moose is amazing, but he's surrounded by all of these like little blue flowers, you know, with little leaves sticking out and the blue flowers are just so beautiful. Like all of it is so beautiful, but the fact that the moose is just surrounded by all of these flowers makes it, you know, just almost like magical, but it, and beautiful all at the same time. Thank you. Um, I want to talk about the moose's tummy. This is a motif that I do in a lot of my woodland work um, for people who aren't seeing this and are just listening. It's kind of like a an oval, but the top of it kind of comes together in a point. If you're familiar with my work, you'll know what I'm talking about. Usually I do it red. Um, it's like this shape with, the, it's outlined in white with a white line coming down and four white lines coming off of that central white line. Mm -hmm. um, this is a tobacco leaf. Um, that kind of doubles as the animal's stomach. And I do it on people, animals, um, all sorts of different things in my work. Um, but I love the symbol of tobacco because it's reciprocity. It's like offering something in exchange for something. You you know, will offer it to your medicine people, to your elders, to storytellers. You'll offer it to the land when you're traveling or when you're giving your prayer or when you're putting out the spirit plate. Um, and I just love this as a symbol for like how we operate within community. And so I like to include that um, in, in all of my, you know, woodland style creations um, wow. because I know that that's such a central part to Mishnabe teachings and, you know, teachings within other indigenous communities as well. Um, and this kind of work that I do is all about the connectivity of everything, the way that everything's uh, interlocked together, the way that we, this can't survive without this or like, you know, each thing relies on something else within our ecosystems, within uh, the climate. Um, 
And so <laughs> like this one thing that's like this red shape, it, 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 the more you talk about it, the more the ideas can kind of grow. So it can, you know, start as reciprocity and the end result of those conversations. is like, we need to do something about climate change to uh, ensure that we have the world here for our next generations. And that's one of our teachings as well, right? Is ensuring that we're not taking too much, that we're uh, mm -hmm. making it better and better for each generation. And so that's sort of something that I love including. Um, and the moose, I feel like is important to me as well. I'm not sure about your teachings with the moose, but um, for me, it's like, uh, I was told this story once of um, where my parents' house is here in Rama is on a very interesting piece of land where the two different ecosystems meet. So like in the Southern part of that is where there's a lot of deer. And in the Northern part of that is where there's a lot of moose. It's like literally before Southern Ontario becomes Muskoka, you know how you see the trees changing? Yep. yep. There's like a line where that happens and the house is sitting like right on that line. So one of our storytellers here was telling me this before and, um, I don't know. I just really love it as a symbol. And, you know, one of my communities is called Moose Deer as well. So there's like <laughs> that connection. But I also love them as a symbol for food sovereignty, which I also use fish a lot for food sovereignty and, um, you know, subsistence hunting and feeding our communities and, you know, not taking too much, not factory farming, not fast food and not fast fashion because you can use every part of a moose and you've got mm -hmm. um, hide and you've got meat and you've got the antlers for jewelry or tools and I just really love it as a symbol for that so I think that's kind of what this piece is about. See that's literally why I had you on this podcast aside from being like a super ultra mega huge fan of yours uh, is because there's so much more in art then when you first look at it, you know, so the first thing I notice is, oh, look at this amazing moose and he's surrounded by flowers and how beautiful that is. And then like the way you learn what it means, all, all of the different messages and implications. I just, that's what I love about it. And there's this other one. Um, it's this one. It appears to be a thunderbird in a dark sky. Um, and he, you know, it's got its wings stretched out and it, it just, to me, has always been such a phenomenal piece. And it was the first piece that I ever saw of yours, like online. And I was like, wow, who made this? And it's always remained one of my favorites ever since. So let's hear about this amazing piece. And I think you said before the show that it was a little bit older. Yeah, this was one of my first pieces you know how I was talking about my learning digital this was kind of around 2015 um, when I was really starting to learn so this illustrative part of it I did on paper because I didn't have the tools to do digital work yet okay. um, so this is an ink drawing with uh, ink and marker that I took a picture of I think with one of my iPhones like not even with a camera like what we have on our iPhones today and both of these pictures were taken on my iPhone um, and then, yeah, this was the result of me playing around in Photoshop and teaching myself how to make stuff glow, how to, I don't know, move stuff around. It was one of my, like, mixed media pieces. Um, the picture was taken on a drive with my parents. They would come pick me up in the city and bring me home because, you know, I didn't have my license. Um, and these drives were always very important because it was like as I was leaving the city, there was immediate relief as the building started to thin 
and they became replaced with trees and fields and sunsets. Um, I felt like, you know, that feeling of traveling home, that comfort, your heart finally settles down, your stomach doesn't feel so tight, my body could finally relax. And so I snapped this picture on one of those drives and it always reminded me of of home and how important the, the traveling was between these two places and um, how I needed to go home to rejuvenate myself to live in an urban space because urban living is difficult for everyone, I think. But, mm-hmm. you know, especially when you're feeling disconnected from your family and your homelands and the pain that you carry from that, because that's a pain that a lot of the people who came before us feel when they were forcibly taken from their homes to go to residential schools. And I just really feel like that kind of feeling reverberates when we're far from home in a certain way. It kind of echoes through, even if it's not exactly the same you know, nothing can compare to what they endured through that process. But the echoes of that kind of go through all of us. And um, the Thunderbird for me is a symbol of healing um, because without them, you know, we don't have that rain coming down. Um, and that rain from from these storms, which I wanted to chase at one point in my life, <laughs> um, makes everything grow. And, and it's that same idea of like rejuvenation and... Um, just comfort and and everything's doing what it's supposed to do um and yeah even like the the body aspect of this too you know thunderbirds i I wrote some poetry before where the thunderbird was like uh related to like moans and like i said the stretch marks on my stomach and i don't know i feel like the thunderbird's very very potent symbol in our communities it's so it's it's just so beautiful and and the way like for obviously for people who are listening to the podcast and and you can google uh, this online you can see like she's got so much of her artwork online it's literally a picture uh, you know of a dark sky with a little bit of red behind it but then you've got this thunderbird uh, on top of it and it just it's always struck me as something that's just so amazing and another one of your pictures which is a it's a little bit different it seems to be a little bit more on the political side uh, is a picture of a woman holding her uh, baby. There's these beautiful flowers again, but they're sitting next to a whole bunch of those large water bottles that you put in like water coolers kind of thing. So can you tell us a little bit about this? Mm -hmm. Um, It's funny that this piece came up because I think it was on my time hop like two days ago that I had had made it like within this time of the year, six years ago or something like that. So I recently posted it on my story and um, have been thinking about this piece. So when it it came up, I was like, oh, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I created this for Vice News when they were creating, they have like an area on their website about the water crisis. Um, And I think they, I would think that they still update the map. I'm not too sure. I haven't visited the page in a while, but there's a map on there that, um, shows you where the boil water advisories are and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and a bunch of information about the um, water crisis here in Canada, where first nations people don't have equal access to clean water. Um, massive problem, <laughs> not okay. Um, and you know, for me, this piece was about um, how important water is to our young people. There's this woman sitting here with her young child Um, And these flowers are growing out of her mouth, the same flowers that I spoke about in the moose piece. Um, So, you know, for me, her and her intention in this piece is that she 
is wishing and praying for that clean water. Those prayers are being carried forward because she wants her young one to grow up um, with access to that mm-hmm. and with more, I don't know, healthier, more options, more, you know what I mean? But then the, the slew of water bottles behind her is about how we have to have bottled water. Like I'm literally drinking like a plastic bottle right now because we can't drink our tap water. Like even here, like I don't, I don't want to drink the tap water. Like um, we've had boil advisories here as well. And we're a pretty, you know, economically stable first nation. We have the casino as a big, um, you know, part of that. And um, there are some first nations who don't have the same resources that we have here who like, you know, their water is even worse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about the Northern communities, how much water even costs to get a case of water. Like I can go to Costco and get this for five bucks or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. but it's going to cost like 10 times that in these other communities. And it's not fair because every single person needs water to live. Yeah. Um, So I wanted this to just kind of have that impact of like how much, how the issue just keeps spiraling because it's like, the only way to get clean water is to drink it out of the plastic. But the more plastic that we use, the more the landfills are getting filled up, the more we're contributing to, you know, pollution and, and climate change and just destroying this earth. So it's kind of like an Ouroboros of like shittiness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A system created not by us, but it's one that it's, it feels impossible to escape sometimes. So I just I love this because it's it's political um it's it's advocacy it's educational it's it's sad it's also hopeful with the prayers it shows how we're all connected like that all of those things about this picture just really struck me and of course mama and baby I'm very partial to babies (laughs) I really like that and then yeah and then this uh final one is uh it's art uh, for so again for people who can't see it's uh, a picture it looks like another thunderbird and it's on it's like the cover so the picture that would be around uh, a, a beverage and I think it's beer um, and it was one of the projects that you worked on and got a lot of attention in the media you know there's people on all sides of this so could you tell us a little bit about this because I, I thought this was like a really interesting collaboration yeah so the first thing I want to say is it's not a Thunderbird. And I think that's where it became controversial. Okay. I, yes, I, I understand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I see it too when people say it. But when I was making it, like that was not even in my mind. Like it's just, mm-hmm. for me, it's a Blackbird. And this isn't done in Woodland style either because I don't have the um, tobacco motif on the stomach. I don't have the right. um, like x-ray on the wings. Yeah. I mean, it's reminiscent in a few ways there's that glowing eye that's reminiscent of the eyeballs that I do and there mm-hmm. is like a that orange life force that kind of looks like veins running from mm-hmm. the mouth to the stomach and kind of starting into the wings um but for me it was just a bird and it was so interesting to me how this whole thing played out because when I got asked to do this collaboration um it was I was all in because I've always seen amazing art on beer cans and Mm. I don't really drink anymore, but you know, mm. I've drank throughout my life and, you know, socially and whatever. But, um, I was always drawn to the craft beers that had, uh, the art pieces on them because you're, you're getting to like, I've followed artists from that where I'm like, Oh, I really love how they use their color or their line work. And 
you just really get exposed to a lot of really mm -hmm. interesting new artists this way. I thought that was like such a brilliant way to not only promote um, like local breweries and local people instead of like buying a two four of Budweiser, for example, you're buying yeah, yeah. you know a smaller batch from a local brewery. Um, you're also learning about local artists and yeah. artists from different backgrounds and different cultures. And I just really thought that was a very smart way to market and to share people's work. So when I got asked to do this by the Indigenous Brew Crew, I was like, yeah, I would love to. I've always wanted to. And this seemed like a good fit because I wasn't going to take any money from this. The money was being donated to um, charities that help with MMIW. So oh, wow. for me, that was like a very important cause. And when I approached it, I thought to myself, got to be careful what goes on this because, uh, you know, for me, when I'm thinking about what the project is, there's always going to be certain things that aren't going to be okay culturally mm -hmm. in certain mm -hmm. aspects. For example, like sharing certain stories that can only be told at a certain time of the year within our right. communities or um, different traditional things that, you know, are kept within our communities that we don't want to share on a global scale. Mm -hmm. I'm very conscious of stuff like that and respectful and try to honor that as much as I can. So for this, I was like, I just want to learn a new style of illustration. I was inspired by a few artists on Instagram who work in a looser, almost like oil paint. Like I even use different brushes on this that I've never used before. So it was a very loose process, like almost like oil painting. I'm mixing the colors. I'm adding different things. And I'm like, this is new and exciting. And that, that was literally where I was at. Like I wasn't like, I'm going to put a Thunderbird on a beer can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, it's a bird. There's some glowing things. It's fun. And I think for me, the, the part of like where the glowing comes down its body, that to me just is inherent regardless of whether I'm doing traditional indigenous art or not, um, because everything has a life force anyway, whether I added that piece. And I think that was the most controversial thing about it is that this bird has that life force going through it because it looks very much like lightning. And so it, it very much, you know, oh. reads as a thunderbird to some people. Right. So... Like, I really thought to myself, oh, I've done my, you know, I've really thought this through. I thought about yeah. it long and hard. I spoke to my family. I spoke to some yeah. people in the community. Everyone was like, sweet. <laughs> I posted it and everything went crazy. Oh, no. Oh, no. Well, I remember I, remember I was watching the circle with my sister-in-law when it all happened. And it's just like my phone started going, meh, meh, meh. And I'm uh. like, who's that? I go on Facebook. And it's always Facebook that starts off the drama. Always, yes. always, always. Facebook's a beast. Um, and uh, it just started going and people were like appalled that I did a beer can design because I'm an indigenous woman. And uh, I think the whole criticism, A, was that it could be a Thunderbird and that I was bastardizing our traditional stories mm -hmm. and spirits by um, putting it on a beer can. Um, the second one was that people thought I was profiting off of something like beer and that that's not okay because a lot of people in our community struggle with alcoholism. So then that's where the stereotyping came into it, which was interesting because it was our own people saying it. Yes. But, you know, you'll see in, in comment sections where people call us alcoholics and say that we're say all this terrible, horrible stuff that yeah. I'm not even going to say because we yeah, all know yeah. what it is. Yeah. Um, but saying all this horrible stuff about us and we fight against it right and we're like we're not though like you're stereotyping us but then when it came to this our own people were like 
how could you pre-order on beer can when our own people are, are alcoholics? And I was like, do you not see how like yeah. not okay that is? Like for us to be, yeah, you know, and and hating on people who do struggle with addictions because addictions, you know, when when people in our community struggle with that, it's the yeah. intergenerational aspect of it. There's a lot of healing that has to be done, and I really don't think it's fair to um, exclude them. Like even you know, a lot of people can't access certain ceremonies or smudging yeah, because yeah. they have to be sober for a certain amount of days. I've never believed in that myself because I'm mm -hmm. like, that's when people, if people need healing, regardless of whether they're under the influence of something like, yeah, we can't deny them that. Like, I really think that that's colonial thinking. Um, and it just, it make it feels like we're excluding people based on our, like, you know, preconceived, I don't even know purity culture yeah. shit right like it, yeah exactly okay give me one second here yeah okay puppy oh, he has awoken <laughs> and is doing his pew pew i don't know if you can hear him chewing on his toy but it's yeah. like squeak 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 <laughs> all right um okay so you know i have to admit that when i first saw this too i was obviously, you know, concerned, like my, I always go by, okay, what's my first reaction? And then I always ask myself, why am I having this reaction? Kind of like sensual art about women. It's like, why am I, why is this making me worried? And it's like, okay, you know, the violence and stuff. And, and we think about the addictions, which are health issues that stem from trauma and the way people are trying to survive each day. Um, and, and then I thought, you know, if I, if I feel bad about this, hi puppy here, if I feel bad about this, am I then letting all of the racists that are in society say, oh, well, because, you know, the, the, those terrible stereotypes, then that means we can't do something when everybody else can, like any other artist could do it. Um, and so, you know, like I, I got... I got it on all sides, why there would be sensitivities, why there would be upset, um, and also why people would celebrate it because you're doing, you know, and being a part of art and, and showing your art and showcasing Indigenous peoples. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm so glad I asked you about this one because now that I actually look at it, and I hope some people go on YouTube and, and look at these pictures or Google them, uh, you can see how it does look like a raven or a crow, you know, and that it doesn't have the stereotypical lightning and all of that stuff. But it's just that first glance when you don't like assess and analyze and really, you know, take apart and unpack a, a piece of art. Now I see it like I now I see it all and, and all of the meaning and intention behind it. So it's OK. I'm just so glad because what you do is also educational and pushing back against stereotypes uh, in, in, in a very important way. So I really appreciate all of this stuff you've done. And I, and I actually appreciate too, that you let me share some of this. Okay. Hold on one second. Yeah, okay. Puppy, you are, come up here for a second. Okay. We're going to have to finish this with him up here because he's just going to cry. Um, um, I do have to add to that. Yeah. I, it was interesting to me that this whole, the whole beer can blew up because I'm not the first indigenous artist to do a beer can. Uh, I don't know why mine was the one that blew up because there is other beer cans that have um, water protectors on it. Raised a fist that says water is life. That was on the market before mine was. Oh, um, wow. There's 
there's more than just this indigenous brewing company as well. There's several. Um, and there's been at the time, uh, for the same project, an indigenous man did a beer can and received no, oh, <laughs> no, no, that's like, terrible. <laughs> but you know, I think I, it was really important for me to take the time to facilitate conversations around this. Like I didn't yeah. just let people, um, vent without responding. Like I had so many conversations with so many people at that time. And as much as there was people who were angry about it, there was people who mm-hmm. were happy about it too. And, yeah. you know, yeah. even people who drink were like, this makes me want to buy it. Like, and I know that the money is going to go to charities and that makes me feel good. And yeah. You know, we can all we can like agree to disagree on things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all how we engage and talk about it and the whys and the why nots and and like you know, everybody's good. It's it's just when you know there's double standards or there's hate involved or there like all of that other negativity stuff. But the fact that you engaged in the conversation, I think, is also really important to help people understand, well, here's what it is, it's not a thunderbird, and here's why I did it, and you know, here's here's the importance of it and all of that stuff. I think that's really important. And it's one of the reasons why I included it on this podcast, because I wanted people to understand like me, I thought it was a Thunderbird this whole time. And I didn't know that it was like a raven or a bird or a crow or something like that. So I think that's uh, it, it's an important message. Hold on a second. Okay, Pop Pop, you can just give me two more minutes. Here, look. Here's your thing. Two more minutes and then you can go for a walk. Um. Okay, so this has been phenomenal. Thanks for sharing all of that. The one question I ask everybody before we're done is, you know, what what would be your advice? What what can Canadians do to support Indigenous peoples in general or specifically Indigenous artists? Because I know as an Indigenous person and anyone who's watching on YouTube, you can see in the background here, oh, I guess it's a... Oh, over here, uh, I have one of Chief Ladybird's uh, prints. It's beautiful. You're gonna have to look it up online to check it out. But um, that's I like to support that way. You know, support original, authentic Indigenous artists in in whatever media that they're doing. And so, is there something else that you know Indigenous peoples or Canadians can be doing to support Indigenous artists? I think the first thing is like invest and buy from authentic indigenous artists. Um, mm-hmm. like the next thing would be amplify. I know that not a lot, of, not everyone can yeah. uh, afford to purchase art all the time. So amplification on social media, it's really easy to do. Um, and I, but I think, you know, sometimes people will do the big follows, like follow a bunch of people on like indigenous people's day or like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but then, then they never interact with you after that. Like yeah. try to stay engaged, like <laughs> keep us on your algorithm so that we can continue to be um, that you can continue to be a part of those conversations and learn from, from everything that we have to share. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Those are the two easiest ways. And it's free too, you know, aside from assuming if you already have the art, it's easy to follow, to like, to subscribe. These things don't cost to share, to reshare, Um, Because all of that triggers the algorithm. So there might be things I see from people that I follow that I'm like, okay, I'm not necessarily going to share that, 
but I'm going to like that so that because it's an form of engagement and do all of that because you obviously can't share everything that everyone does all the time. But in those particular cases, there's lots of way to trigger those algorithms. And then those indigenous peoples like yourself get shown to other people who might be interested in it and so on and so forth. So I think that's really good advice. Um, all these ways that we can support indigenous artists. And I, I can't thank you enough for coming on here. I'm so glad that as your biggest fan, I actually got to talk to you, hear from you, hear the meaning behind your art, you know, your life journey and all of this wonderful stuff. Oh, shit. Oh my Sorry. Lord. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and all of this wonderful stuff that you're working on, like it's, it means a lot to a lot of people and I'm sure you probably don't hear it enough, but you are an inspiration to a lot. You, your work is inspires the resistance, it inspires cultural revitalization. It inspires um, all everyone to really celebrate. Our people are beautiful. Our cultures are beautiful. Our art's beautiful. Everything about us is beautiful and we shouldn't have limitations. And you're one of those people who are kind of challenging all of those limitations. And for that, I'm your biggest fan. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of you as well. Like seriously, you're so easy to talk to and the amount of content that you put out to educate people, it is not easy educating about the stuff that you do. It's very like emotional and laborious and you really put yourself out there for all of us. And I, I appreciate it. I know a lot of other people really appreciate it too. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. So everybody, um, I will post links to Chief Ladybird's Instagram and her uh, Twitter. And you can find, I mean, you can just Google her art online, but I'll make sure to post links to the video when the video comes out and the podcast and vice versa. And I'll try to do little clips to share it on other different platforms. So let's follow Chief Ladybird's advice. Like, comment, share, <laughs> follow, you know, do whatever uh, to make sure that her art goes far beyond what we were just talking about on this podcast and we celebrate her forever. So thank you, Chief Ladybird. I hope to be able to talk to you again. And for all of the listeners out there, welcome to the first podcast back in this new undefined. We don't know how long this season's going to be, but thank you for the support. You can find me on pampometer.com. All my podcasts are there. Warrior Kids podcast, YouTube's blogs, Everything that I write and pontificate about, you can find it there. So thank you, Walaliug. Keep living a warrior life. <laughs>